from the Mom Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez, how's this for a tough decision? Would you trade protected habitat land where desert tortoises walk past Joshua trees if it means that the state meets all of its clean energy goals? Find out why President Biden may have to choose between conservation and climate change with California dealing with the fallout either way. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for being with us today. Coming up. You really see basically a version of anti-maskers, even in 1887. It's amazing the many ways we have not learned our lessons since the smallpox epidemic first hit Los Angeles way back in the 1800s. That bit of L.A. history is just ahead. But first, let's head out to the California desert. Turns out there's some real tension between folks who want to protect the land and those who want to use it to create clean energy. And that conflict is shaping up to be one of President Biden's first tough decisions on environmental policy. With us to discuss all of this is Sammy Roth, staff writer for the Los Angeles Times. Now, Sammy, at the heart of this debate is something called the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan. And that dates back to the Obama administration. What's the original idea here? This was this massive land use plan. It covers an enormous area. It's more than 10 million acres out in the desert in California, down from the the border with Mexico all the way up to the Owens Valley across all of these desert counties. And basically the idea here was to strike a balance between renewable energy and conservation of these landscapes and ecosystems and species. So it was this, this idea that you would say, okay, here are the areas where we're going to allow you know solar and wind farms to be built and in fact make it easier for them to get built even if it requires you know getting rid of some tortoise habitat or maybe you have to cut down a couple of Joshua trees somewhere to do it. And here are the areas much, much larger than those development zones that we're going to protect in perpetuity and say, you know, nothing gets built here. That was the goal, to strike the balance between those two things across the whole desert in California. And the numbers were six and a half million acres for conservation, about 400,000 for clean energy products. Is that how it broke down? That's right. And also a couple million acres on top of that for recreation, things like, you know, off-roading and rock hounding and, and hiking and whatnot. And you mentioned desert tortoises. I mean, they're bighorn sheep that also live. They're golden eagles. You have the Joshua trees, salt flat. I mean, this is a beautiful piece of land. I love being out there. I mean, you if you just drive through the desert, if you know it from like, you know, going out to Palm Springs or driving to Vegas or Phoenix, you might just think, oh, there's nothing out there. But when you and you stop and slow down and get into some of these areas with these mountains and these canyons and these salt lakes. It's remarkable. It's a beautiful place to spend time. All right. Now, fast forward to the Trump administration, which had been thinking of retooling this for a while, but announced changes just last week. What did they do? So basically, after three years of reviewing this and, and basically having radio silence with one week left in the Trump administration, they came out and said, OK, we're going to propose to remove the conservation protections from several million of these acres And they're going to open up some more space, like 800,000 more acres to solar and wind development. 
unclear if you know this is actually going to move forward or not because the Biden administration. This is a draft, so the you know the new president could could throw it out. But that's what they proposed. So it's almost as if the Trump administration did something at the last minute to lay this conundrum on Joe Biden's lap. Yeah, it's a little unclear what the point is of issuing it so late when the new administration can just undo it. I think they'd probably tell you, oh, they put a lot of work into it. They wanted to get it out there. But yes, it does create this dilemma for Biden where on the one hand, conservation is a, a big priority for him and his people. They, they've endorsed this target of 30 by 30, which means protect 30% of all the land and water in America by 2030. So they want to protect these spaces. On the other hand, they've got these really big targets for fighting climate change and building renewable energy. And so this is a plan that also would potentially make that a bit easier to do. So, Sammy, how easy would it be for President Biden to undo or at least uh, rescind what President Trump tried to do? It would be pretty easy. I mean, this is a draft document. It came out with a 90 day public comment period. So pretty much they could just scrap it if they wanted to at the Interior Department. Okay, so it would be pretty easy. But as we said, the decisions for Biden are still very difficult. We're speaking to Sammy Roth, staff writer for the LA Times about renewable energy and conservation in the California desert. Now, a lot of people are very split on what is best here. So can you give us a sense of what is behind each side's argument and what they are arguing? Right. The renewable energy companies, the folks that, you know, build solar and and wind power plants, they looked at this original plan from the Obama administration. They said this isn't going to be good enough. You know, they're looking out. California has this target of 100 percent clean energy by 2045, which is very ambitious. Biden has an even more aggressive target of 100 percent clean energy by 2035, a, a full decade earlier. And, you know, they're looking at, at what needs to be done to meet these climate targets in the U.S. and globally and saying we need to build a lot of stuff very, very quickly and we need the land to do that. And, and they look at this desert plan and, and other regulations and other parts of the state as things that are going to make it harder to fight climate change. That's one side of it. And on the other side, you've got traditional environmental groups and folks who love the desert and folks who love to be out there, you know, hiking and uh, driving their off-road vehicles and and people who just want to protect the species that are out there. And they're saying, you know, these lands have already been degraded enough. We've built highways and freeways through them. We've had oil and gas extraction in various places. If we want these places to survive climate change as the world gets warmer and Joshua trees lose their habitat and, you know, other species are forced to move into new areas, we've got to protect these big landscapes. And that's, uh, you know, as William Shakespeare once wrote, uh, therein lies the rub, because it seems like both renewable energy and uh, conservationists have similar goals, but there's that that friction between how the land is used. There is. And, you know, it's fascinating. That was what this plan was supposed to do in the first place, right? I mean, it's this idea of what they call landscape level planning, where rather than making these decisions on a project by project basis, or, you know, you you protect that area, but not that one. The idea is you look at the whole desert, you look at all 11 million of these acres, this huge part of California, and you say, here's how we're going to map this out to meet all of these objectives. Not everyone thinks they got it right the first time, but but that's the goal. And that's the needle that Biden is going to have to continue to try to thread here. The state of California, Sammy, generally is on board with what side of this issue? Because, I w- you know, they have, as you mentioned, they have uh, ambitious energy goals. But uh, at the same time, um, I'm sure they would be interested in protecting all the plants and animals that live in these areas. They are. They, I mean, California, I mean, this is a federal plan. So this was all, you know, federal acreage that was being looked at. But but California was a big player in writing this. And and the Energy Commission and the you know the wildlife agencies here, they're very supportive of, of what's already in place and they don't want to see changes. One one point that they've made with regards to renewable energy and fighting climate change is that it's it's not just the desert where you can put this stuff. I, I mean, there's been a lot of solar development on farmland in the Central Valley. 
which you know has this this interesting value because they they don't have enough water resources up there to continue with all of the farming that we've got now. So solar is an interesting way to you know shift some of that land use away from agriculture. Uh, you've got rooftop solar as well. I mean, there's a lot of potential to install solar panels and batteries in people's homes rather than out on these landscapes. Ultimately, you're probably going to need some of everything. But from the, the perspective of the, the state of California, the desert plan does leave enough room for this stuff right now. And one of the interesting things I read in your story, Sammy, is that uh, even though you know anything that comes out of California, you would think is opposed to anything that President Trump would have even thought up. But the California Wind Energy Association embraced Trump's idea. They even said something along the lines of a uh, broken clock being right at least twice in a day. That's right. It's definitely been a, you know, an interesting tension, the, the wind and the solar industries, frankly, I don't think either of them has, you know, really fully embraced, you know, oh, gung ho, the Trump administration, we're so happy they're doing this, because I, I mean, I think they like everyone else were skeptical that helping renewable energy was necessarily going to be their biggest intention. But they're cautiously optimistic. I mean, they, you know, I think they would like to see some of this stuff happen if possible. What are the chances the mining industry might benefit from this? You know, the conservation groups have been reviewing these changes proposed by Trump, and they're looking at it and thinking, gee, you know, renewable energy might not be the big winner here. It might actually be mining. A bunch of these areas that protections would be removed potentially could be helpful for for opening up new areas to lithium mining or rare earth metals mining or other forms of, you know, the sort of typical extractive type activities that the Trump administration is in favor of. Even there, though, you continue to have this interesting tension because with lithium, for instance, that's a key ingredient in electric vehicle batteries and batteries for storing solar power. There's no easy answers. I mean, there's a balance to be struck on all of this stuff. I know the Biden administration is brand new, but I'm wondering, Sammy, has uh, President Biden given any clues at all about how he'll manage the larger issues that this all brings up, balancing conservation with uh, renewable energy production? One thing that we know is that Biden endorsed this target of protect 30% of America's lands and waters by 2030. So we know they're going to be taking conservation seriously alongside the building renewable energy issue. One thing that I found is that their new appointee for Deputy Interior Secretary, Elizabeth Klein, she worked in the Obama administration and she made some pretty favorable comments about this California desert plan and and the fact about this idea of doing this type of planning effort in other states where you look at these landscapes big picture and try to map everything out. I suspect they're going to want to move forward with the plan probably as it was. And even if they make some tweaks, they're going to try to replicate it elsewhere would be my guess. Sammy, one more thing. I mean, you covered energy and the environment while President Trump was in office for a long time. How did your job change when President Trump came into the Oval Office? And how do you expect your reporting to change now under President Biden? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, one of the difficulties being a climate, energy and environment reporter under President Trump, you know, when you're dealing with federal issues is that there really wasn't much nuance to find. I mean, this was an administration that for the most part explicitly or implicitly acted like climate change didn't exist. It was an administration that was so supportive of fossil fuels and and really didn't, you know, care to do much for renewables. I I'm excited under the Biden administration now to be able to write stories that are sort of more holding them accountable. You know, they have this great rhetoric on climate. Are they living up to it? Are they actually doing the things that need to be done? to meet these ambitious goals and, you know, and what are the things they could be doing that they're not that, that might work better. So I, that was the kind of reporting I was not able to do under Trump because it was so uh, one-sided. And I, I think there will be some good stories to be told there in the next, you know, four years or more. That's Sammy Roth, staff writer for the LA Times, telling us about the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan and what it means for California. Sammy, thanks again. Thanks, A.
Well, one thing the Biden administration is tackling right away is the pandemic. And today the president said in very clear terms that things will get worse before they get better. He said the death toll across the United States could pass 500,000 next month, and he expressed frustration over how little cooperation there's been with the Trump administration and also the lack of a federal vaccination plan. So today he signed 10 executive orders aimed at speeding up vaccinations and bringing the case count down, including a mandate that people wear masks while traveling. Here in L.A. County, coronavirus case numbers and positivity rates have stabilized, but officials say it's still way too early to say if the surge is over and the virus remains widespread throughout the county. Public Health Department yesterday reported more than 6,400 new cases and 262 deaths, but said those numbers reflect closed testing sites for the holiday weekend and slightly less testing capacity now that Dodger Stadium has become a vaccination location. However, the recent dip in hospitalizations has given embattled Los Angeles hospitals a little bit of hope. And KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier is here to tell us all about it. So, Jackie, more than 7,000 people are hospitalized with COVID in L.A. County. How are the hospitals holding up? Well, intensive care beds have been full for weeks now. They've been putting patients in overflow areas like emergency rooms or operating recovery rooms or even sometimes the gift shop. One administrator told me they put 14 more beds in their auditorium. But the roughly 7,200 hospitalized patients are actually an improvement. We were at about 8,000 just two weeks ago. We'll take any morsel of good news we can get, especially right now. Now, we've heard a lot about the possibility of L.A. hospitals going into crisis care. So, Jackie, what does that mean, and is it still a possibility? Crisis care is really the last option. It's battlefield medicine, where you focus on people most likely to survive. No hospital in L.A. has gotten there. The situation has gotten a lot better in the last two weeks because there are fewer patients. It is a possibility if we see another surge, either from New Year's or a more varied strain, we could easily have more hospitalizations. But to borrow a medical term, the hospitals have stabilized. Uh, It's not to say we're out of the woods. We're not. But it is a little bit of good news. Yeah, as I said, we'll take whatever we can get. Uh, Anything good news is definitely uh, something we want to hear. Now, uh, you've also learned that there is a a team from the state that's uh, helped coordinate supplies such as oxygen. Tell us uh, about that. I talked to Kathy Chedister. She's the director of the L.A. County Emergency Management Services Agency. And she explained that the county and state team work with hospitals that are right on that edge of crisis care to get them what they need. Some of it may be that they're unable to discharge patients to skilled nursing facilities. Some of it may be staffing issues. Others may be equipment issues. Uh, We might put them on internal disaster for 24 hours, get additional staff to them, help them discharge patients and then get them back on their feet. Chedister says it's been very successful. They've been able to get staff from state contracts and the Department of Defense, uh, coordinate more oxygen delivery, even just getting gloves so that these hospitals can cope. I mean, remember just two weeks ago, ambulances were rationing oxygen. Yeah, and Jackie, I'm glad you brought this up because I've been wondering for a while, why was there an oxygen shortage and is it still a problem? Right now, our oxygen supplies look pretty good, uh, but but let me explain why why we need oxygen in these hospitals. COVID patients have injured lungs, and they need 100% oxygen sometimes for days. A non-COVID patient on oxygen would go through maybe six liters by mask a day. A COVID patient can use 80 liters a day. 
So all of a sudden around Christmas and the beginning of January, we had thousands of people needing way more oxygen than anyone expected. Oxygen really became the new ventilator. It was a scarce resource. And a few things happened that helped. First, the number of people in the hospital has gone down, which is great. The Army Corps of Engineers were called in to look at oxygen delivery systems within the hospitals. Sometimes these are old pipes and pressurized systems that need maintenance. They actually pump the oxygen through the hospital. And then the companies that deliver oxygen to hospitals added more staff and trucks. Hospitals have uh, big oxygen tanks that are refilled that's similar to those big tanker trucks that refill gas stations with gasoline. It's like that. And then this state and county team that I was talking about ordered more canisters for ambulances. So it was really a coordinated effort. So that state team, uh, Jackie, how long will they be here? There's no deadline. Uh, Here's what Kathy Chedister, director of the LA County Emergency Management Services Agency, told me. I think some of it's going to just depend on the numbers. And as the number of COVID positive patients within the hospitals decreases and the hospitals can get back to their normal ratios, nurse staffing ratios, the state can pull back a little bit. And she said that would probably be when hospitalizations go down to about 3,000 patients. And as we mentioned uh, earlier, Jackie, there are more than 7,000 people hospitalized with COVID in L.A. County right now. Yeah, there are. Um, So we really need people to keep wearing their masks, not socialize outside of the people they live with. Uh, Our hospital and healthcare workers are exhausted, and it would really just take another few hundred patients to put us right back into a very precarious situation. All right, that's KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier. Jackie, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, say you're trying to rent a place to live somewhere in L.A., but you get turned down. However, something about your interaction with the landlord just didn't feel right, as if your race was the reason why you weren't allowed to rent there. So who do you call? Well, there is a place that will take that call, and it's all part of the larger effort to address social justice reform in Los Angeles. Find out all about it when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and on the KPCC app, I'm Martinez. 
A lot of changes on the way in 2021. For people in Los Angeles, one of the most anticipated is a new relationship between L.A.'s law enforcement agencies and communities of color. Well, hopefully. But how would that look like? Today, we continue our series of conversations with experts and stakeholders, each giving their take on what's ahead. Joining us is Capri Maddox, Executive Director of the Los Angeles Department of Civil and Human Rights, which opened its doors to the public last December. She's also a trustee of Southern California Public Radio's board, which governs KPCC. Capri, welcome back to Take Two. Thank you for having me, eh? Now, uh, your department with the city is uh, so brand new, it's not even two months old yet. Uh, But what can we expect from you and your team when you're fully up to speed? Say, for example, if someone gives you a loan and you get an interest rate different than maybe your white counterpart that happens to have the same credit score, Mm -hmm. that may be a way that you can find justice through our department. Possibly a school not allowing someone with a medical condition to be admitted to a private institution. If someone denies you employment based on your partnership status or in housing, if someone denies you housing based on your citizenship status, you can contact our office. There'll be an investigation. Uh, We would move forward with an action from anywhere from a letter of concern all the way to an opportunity for financial recourse in the amount of up to $250,000 for some of the most egregious cases. We are here for you to bring justice. So a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons why Los Angeles needs this department. Now, uh, Capri, your department does not have jurisdiction over the Los Angeles Police Department, but we asked you to join us today because of this goal of trying to lift up all boats and helping people and, and communities as a way to prevent crime in the first place. So can you connect some dots for us on this? How could, say, helping someone having an issue with a landlord prevent a break in? Just think about it. If someone loses their job, and they uh, lose their housing because of a discriminatory practice, they may be more vulnerable and more susceptible to being a victim of crime as a homeless person. There may be discriminatory practices that could lead to someone being underpaid or fired, and that could make a difference between them sending their kids to college. You know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And we know that when we have a more equitable and just environment, we will have an opportunity for crime to go down. When people have jobs, when they have the ability to know they have a future and they know how to make it into the middle class and beyond, let me tell you, they are going to um, be better parents. That kid is not going to make a poor decision and join a gang. I don't want to, you know, say that we're a panacea here, Mm -hmm. but we are a part of the solution here. Capri, wondering what social science is out there that can say, say, if you spend X amount of dollars on community investments, that it translates into X amount in saved crime prevention? You know, I don't have any specific numbers, you know, in front of me, but I do know that over the years, particularly when I served as a neighborhood prosecutor, we knew that investing in the community was a tool to deal with crime prevention by, you know, supporting youth organizations, by dealing with uh, neighborhood blight, for example. 
Now, during the 2020 protests, there were calls to defund the police. It's better understood as redirecting funds from police into community programs. And just before the holidays, the city council put out a plan for that. But uh, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti issued a rare veto, citing a need for something bolder. Now, uh, Garcetti is is your boss on this, technically. He's the one that hired you, uh, Capri. Was, was that the most prudent move by the mayor? not going to get into the deliberations of the mayor. I am, you know, just grateful that the mayor created this department to make a difference. But I will tell you this, with the input of community activists, uh, Mayor Garcetti made a decision to really protect the African-American and Latino Angelinos to make sure that they did not bear an unequal burden as it relates to the painful budget cuts. And I'm sure that city council and the mayor will figure out a way to address some of the needs of underrepresented communities in a substantial um, way. Do you think reducing funds for the LAPD is even necessary? I do think that we needed to have resources to meet some of our needs of the community-based operations that are serving and to think about where we have su- substantial inequities, in, particularly in South LA and East Los Angeles. So it's not so much as whether dollars needed to be reduced mm-hmm. from LAPD directly, but we did need more resources in some of our underserved communities. Talking to Capri Maddox, Executive Director of the Los Angeles Department of Civil and Human Rights. So let's talk more about your work, uh, which is coming in stages, as you mentioned. Uh, so what is happening right now is that you're holding uh, roundtables with low-income students of color. So you can find out how to better connect them to jobs or opportunities in, in higher education. Uh, Capri, what have you heard so far that you think uh, you're the most able to help them address uh, right off the bat? We have about 600,000 students in LA Unified A, and they are not going anywhere. So we need to invest in them. And I call upon our business leaders, particularly those in high income potential career paths, to assist our students early and often. It doesn't make sense that you can be someone from another state in the middle of America, and you're more likely to get a job in Hollywood than the kids that went to school within a 10 block radius of that Mm. very institution. And so we need to make sure that we have pathways of success for our residents. We have, for example, the NFL Network is interested in mentoring students to let them know of the many um, career paths as it relates to uh, football. And it's not everyone that carries a football that, you know, can get a position in the space. <laughs> they have on-air personalities. They have opportunities to learn about personnel and human relations. But I just think um, overall, the upper mobility programming allows us to speak to our young folks and figuring out exactly what they need. So on that on that very topic, you'll also be doing this uh, program called Renew. You'll ask companies in L.A. to sign a pledge to 100 percent pay equity for people of color. What have your own studies shown about that disparity right now and how race might be a factor? So we know that when you think about tech or high finance, et cetera, We are not represented as the African-American and Latino community in a number of ways, but we have companies that have come on board to take a pledge with Mayor Garcetti to achieve equity 
um, and they took a pledge to do six things, actually. First, to increase um, hiring of Black and Latino workers by 30%, increase the number of managers and executives in that space by 16%, um, definitely eliminating the wage gap for workers of color, and increasing the number of procurement dollars as well as representation and marketing dollars um, that they will spend on behalf of their respective companies. And I think that's going to make a a big difference for some of our community-based organizations as we deal with equity in the workplace in a substantial way. I can imagine Capri companies would probably want to be a part of this, but how do you make sure that that what you want them to do gets carried out? We have... um, studies and um, analysis that will be taking place. And I wanted to thank the Annenberg Foundation for actually funding the software that will um, allow us to actually document and track progress year by year. But it is really important to know that we have um, a number of companies that have actually stepped up in this space. A Gensler, the architectural firm here in Los Angeles, as well as Morgan Stanley and others that have really stepped up to sign on to this pledge. And we um, also have a mentoring program that will allow us an opportunity to work with these companies year in and year out. When you talk about your department's goals and just listening to them, Capri, I mean, there, there's some pretty big goals that you're shooting for. And you're tasked also with putting some teeth behind claims of racial injustice in its many forms. Your department, as we mentioned, is, is just barely getting underway. Is, is what you want, at least right off the bat, too big of a task for you to handle like immediately? Or is this one of these long-term things that you're hoping grows into it? No, we actually are interested in, you know, hitting the ground running. We've already done some substantial work, eh? Um, and I actually like the idea of of taking on a little bit too much because people in Los Angeles have been taking a little bit too much. I mean, our work is more important than ever, eh? And as it relates to the discrimination um, policies that we will be addressing um, through our enforcement actions, we will have that operation of our department up this spring. You know, the protests of last summer had this sense of urgency to them. But Capri, what can you say to listeners out there who who want change but might be frustrated knowing that uh, it might take your department a little bit of time to become a a full-fledged player in that change? I think it's important for us to know just like hate had time to grow and to morph from slavery to discriminatory practices in lending and housing and and employment, we know that it'll take time for us to deal with it. That's Capri Maddox, Executive Director of the Los Angeles Department of Civil and Human Rights. Capri, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, A. Before L.A. grew into the sprawling cosmopolitan metropolis metropolis it is today, it was a teeny tiny little town on the west coast of the U.S. with dreams of economic growth. But that was a tough sell in L.A. of the late 1800s when a series of smallpox outbreaks happened. That led to a lot of the same social consequences that we see right now in L.A. today. Find out how when Take Two continues. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, 
celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and also on kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. Yesterday, we hit a significant moment in the pandemic. January 20th marked a year since the first case of COVID-19 was reported in the United States. Since then, as we've tried to figure out how to respond to and live through this crisis, medical experts and historians have often referred to the last great pandemic, the 1918 Spanish flu. But for Los Angeles, there were a number of health emergencies in the 1800s that are just as instructive for what we're dealing with right now. They began with the smallpox epidemic of 1862 and 1863. Then L.A. would go on to have four more smallpox outbreaks over the next 25 years. Hadley Mears is a historical journalist who wrote all about this for our website, LAS, that's L-A-I-S-T dot com. And her article is titled, What the L.A. Smallpox Epidemics of the 1800s Can Teach Us About COVID Today. And Hadley, let's set the stage for a second. Uh, What was L.A. like uh, back in 1862 and who lived here back then? So L.A. was a really a Wild West kind of desperado outpost, right? It's nothing like we would think of today. It had around 4,000 people in it. Uh, there were a lot of folks of Mexican-American descent. Uh, there were still a lot of Native Californians here. And then you had your kind of Scotch-Irish and Anglo folks who had come over as well. So it was a kind of an unrecognizable city in terms of what it looked like. It was basically a little adobe town centered around what we would now think of as um, Olvera Street and the plaza. Now, can you describe what happened, what followed, as it became clear that uh, they had an epidemic on their hands back then? What was the level of concern and confusion? I think the concern was really, really great. And what was kind of astounding is there was already a smallpox vaccine, and people already knew that you could vaccinate against infectious disease at this time. So they already had that in their arsenal. But what you see is folks uh, of limited means being basically forcibly taken to this place called the Pest House. And this was a really terrible, poorly run place at the start where folks of lesser means had to go uh, to either survive smallpox or, or perish from smallpox. And so there was this real inequality in care right from the start, even in this kind of rough and tumble town where everyone was kind of, you know, on their own, there was still this huge class disparity in terms of care. And now of the people that you mentioned, people that uh, didn't have means, uh, who exactly were these people that uh, had to do things that maybe they didn't want to do? Uh, this was primarily a lot of the native California the area. They were actually hit hardest and first by the smallpox outbreak of 1862, 1863. 
And not surprisingly, due to the history, often they were very wary of getting the vaccine and getting treatment from these American doctors. Now, other outbreaks of smallpox hit L.A. over the next couple of decades. It wasn't as deadly as the first, um, but did it change anything in terms of L.A.'s response? Well, it's really fascinating to see that as L.A. gets bigger and more prosperous and is sold as this kind of next level, next generation city in this city of health and sunshine and becomes an economic powerhouse, the smallpox is seen less as this terrifying plague and more as an economic and social annoyance. And it becomes something that the city leaders kind of want to hide when there's an outbreak and also coupon kind of put down and say, don't worry about it. It's not that big deal because of the huge impacts it could have economically and culturally on this burgeoning, growing city. Yeah. And that's part of this, too. Right, Hallie, because it's it's, you know, at the time, L.A. was trying to build itself as a very healthy place to live. And it doesn't help their PR if people are dying of smallpox. Right, exactly. And what you have is a war, basically, between uh, the two big important cities in California, San Francisco and Los Angeles, with the San Francisco Examiner and the LA Times in a war, because the San Francisco Examiner is saying, look, LA is just so obsessed with their real estate boom and their economy that they're totally hiding and downplaying this horrible smallpox outbreak. Basically, it is a shady place you don't want to do business. And so the L.A. Times and the mayor, Mayor Workman, are furious and refute this and say, no, we are not lying. We are a great place for businesses to come and we're a great, healthy, beautiful place. So you really see this conflict between public health and capitalism. And sadly, it seems like in 1887, it's really capitalism that won. Was L.A. at least handling the medical end of things better than the first time around? Well, it's really interesting. Basically, every single smallpox outbreak throughout the century, they ended up relying on this amazing um, organization called the Daughters of Charity, which was a Catholic group of nuns. And they would basically, every single one of the times the smallpox hit, they would come into these horrible pest houses where the um, more disadvantaged folks from the city with smallpox would be forced to go, take it over, clean it up, and give really good, loving tender care to the people at the pest house. So by 1887, they do seem to have learned to very quickly have gotten the Daughters of Charity into this pest house, which was actually at Chavez Ravine, so around Dodger Stadium, to to at least administer care that was somewhat to the standards of what we would think was acceptable today. We're talking to Hadley Mears. Her latest for LAS.com is called What the L.A. Smallpox Epidemics of the 1800s Can Teach Us About COVID Today. Um, so it's based on some of the things you've said, Hadley, um, people not trusting the vaccine, uh, people turning mm-hmm. to home remedies that maybe aren't uh, very scientifically proven. It seems like some of the things we're dealing with uh, with the coronavirus and smallpox back then are kind of overlapping. I mean, it just seems like a lot of the same attitudes exist. Oh, 1,000%. I mean, there's this fascinating story from 1887 about a police officer, of all people, who refused to go to the hospital, even though he had smallpox. 
and the LA Times talks about the devastation that this has wrought on his block because all the people on his block who had stores, the stores closed because no one will come because they're scared of getting smallpox. Uh, people lose their jobs from their employers because they live in the same building as this policeman who refuses to keep other people safe uh, by going to the hospital. So you really see basically a version of anti-maskers even in 1887. You know, at one point in your article, you wrote about undertakers being overwhelmed and local government underfunded. Uh, you know, it makes you know us all think about recent cremation restrictions passed in California due to the backlog caused by the pandemic. Uh, what was that situation back then like? Well, when you think about it, funeral services were so rudimentary back then. And, you know, it's a lot of what's going on with the pandemic today was going on back then, too. You didn't have infrastructure set up in the death and dying industry, which is, you know, what it was even back then for these massive amounts of deaths all at once. And so you really had a situation where undertakers could not get these bodies fast enough. And the fact that back then, you know, it was very important. Most folks were Catholic, especially in the 1863 pandemic, to have kind of a full Catholic burial. So there were very specific ways that you had to go about burying and honoring a body. And L.A. simply wasn't up to the task then or or sadly now. You know, as we reflect on what's going on today, what can we learn from the past? I'm wondering, Heather, when you're when you're researching this article and writing and thinking, oh, my gosh, the similarities are are shocking and and maybe a little frightening. But what can we learn from what L.A. has been through in the past on this? Well, I think that we can learn that it's important to stay informed about what's going on. So I think, you know, learning real information, uh, trusting information. And LA did get through this. They did get through these smallpox outbreaks. And a lot of it was because most of the people did follow orders. They stayed quarantined. They avoided homes with yellow flags. Uh, They got the vaccine. Over 20,000 vaccines were given in 1887. So, you know, if you follow the rules and keep each other safe and care about each other, you do eventually get through these horrible times. It's like we're doing this interview 160 years ago. That's Hadley Mears. Her latest is called What the L.A. Smallpox Epidemics of the 1800s Can Teach Us About COVID Today. You can read her article on our website, LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Hadley, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All right, there is one nice little bit of news for some essential workers during this pandemic. Trader Joe's is among a handful of companies that will pay their employees to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The Monrovia-based grocery chain says it will give workers two hours of pay for each dose they receive, as well as covering any costs for getting it. The Dollar General Store will provide four hours of pay for its hourly employees if they receive the vaccine. And Instacart, the grocery delivery service company, plans to give out a $25 stipend to encourage its in-store shoppers and contractors to get vaccinated. Now, all of this follows news yesterday that Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia signed an ordinance that would give what he called, quote, hero pay increases to the city's grocery store workers. Now, that means companies with at least 300 employees nationwide or more than 15 employees per grocery store in Long Beach would have to pay workers an extra four bucks an hour for at least 120 days. 
Now, for its part, the California Grocers Association responded to the news with a lawsuit calling the move illegal. All right, more Take Two coming up in about 60 seconds. So stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and available on Apple Podcasts. I'm e. Martinez. Last fall, California voters passed Proposition 22, drafted and backed by Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. Now, the prop, which became law this month, allows the companies to keep drivers as independent contractors instead of making them employees with guaranteed pay and health insurance. Now, as critics say they predicted would happen, Prop 22 is now having an effect on the state's wider labor market. The country's second largest grocery store chain, Albertsons, is laying off its grocery delivery employees and replacing them with contractors at DoorDash. With a closer look, here's KQED's Sam Harnett. Derek Neal moved back to the Los Angeles area when his mother died last year. Neal is 40, and he's been working ever since he turned 18, mostly retail. Walmart, Home Depot. In Los Angeles, he got a job delivering groceries for Vons, and he really liked it. I have a a company van that has um, compartments where there's one's grocery, and then then you have one that's for chilled produce, and then we have a frozen uh, compartment. So, you know, it's basically like I'm bringing the store to the customer. The income was a lifeline, especially during COVID. But then, a few months ago, he says he got called into a meeting with other delivery employees. And managers told them all that they'd be laid off in a few months. Independent contractors at DoorDash were going to take over their jobs. Not only am I going to be out of the job, I've been homeless since the 15th of December. His landlord sold his building, and he can't find an affordable place. So he's been living in his car, which he just made the down payment on. He doesn't understand the company's decision. There's tons of work. He says he's doing like 11 or 12 deliveries just in the morning. If I were able to talk to him, I would, I would just ask him, why? What, 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 where, who, who, did the, who did the cost analysis on, on, on this? And who deemed it, you know, that, oh, well, it, it was more cost efficient just to go to independent contractors. 
than the people that we already have that are there day in, day out, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, you know, going through it. Albertsons will terminate Neo's delivery job on February 27th, along with a number of other non-union delivery employees. The company will not specify how many, but it could be several hundred in California. In a statement, an Albertsons spokesperson wrote, This decision will allow us to compete in the growing home delivery market more effectively, adding that Albertsons Company's divisions plans to offer positions to each impacted associate. The company has no binding legal commitment to offer these new jobs, and it's not clear how these positions would compare to the delivery work that Neil is doing. All of this is exactly what labor advocates warned about with Proposition 22. I am not surprised that this happened this quickly because um, what the Proposition 22 worker category that was created does is significantly lower labor costs for corporations. Vinu Dubal is a professor of law at UC Hastings. She says logistics and delivery employees are just the first to lose their jobs to the new worker category created by Prop 22. Proposition 22 is essentially a blueprint for how to lower labor standards across the board. Venture capitalists see opportunity. Sean Carolan is a partner at Menlo Ventures. In an article published on The Information, he wrote that there's potential for this new labor category in industries like nursing, executive assistance, tutoring, programming, restaurants, agriculture, and zookeeping. Here's Dubal again. For those who have been thinking of this as a whole different type of work, as something that would never affect them, um, this is really the time to start paying attention. This model of work is coming for you and your job. Executives at gig companies have long argued that their kind of work is something totally innovative. David Weil is dean of the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. He says even though this work is through an app, the business strategy is nothing new. It is just a a part of the evolution of the erosion of workplace standards that has happened in lots of different ways. Weil came up with the term fissuring for what's happening to American workplaces. Since the 70s, executives have turned more full-time employee jobs into part-time, temporary, outsourced, and now independent contractor work through gig platforms that don't offer traditional employee benefits. You're using the platform as a way to get out of the obligation of actually treating those workers as your employees. The DoorDash replacement at Albertsons has spurred other grocery delivery workers in California to unionize. I can't tell you how many times I've told people that I feel so lucky to have this job. Lee Littlefield is a delivery employee in the San Francisco Bay Area at Safeway, which is also owned by Albertsons. She and others just unionized with United Food and Commercial Workers International. She says they wrote into the contracts that employees could not have shifts taken by DoorDash. If we didn't have this contract, I imagine that we would have been laid off with everybody else. Derek Neal was not part of a union. So now he's trying to figure out what to do next. He hopes he can find another employee job with some kind of safety net, which in America is becoming harder and harder to find. I'm Sam Harnett. All right, we're closing the show today with a question for you, the listeners. Now, for the last uh, few weeks, we've been asking to call in and share how you've been doing. So now that uh, we're in day one 
of the Biden-Harris administration, the first full day. We want to know, how are you feeling today? Optimistic, pessimistic, neutral, whatever it is, just uh, let us know. We would love to hear from you. So call us, uh, leave us a message on our voicemail. It's 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. Leave us your name, where you're from, and how we can reach you. And we'll try to get your voice on the radio. All right, so that number is 626-583-5281. That's one way to reach us here at Take Two. You could also go on Twitter. We're at Take Two, at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. And that's uh, good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Talk to you then.